the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. We are coming to the end at this point in Luke. Jesus is dead. Darkness has had its hour. But all along, God's plan was in action, wasn't it? The price for our sin has now been paid. Jesus has triumphed. But because no one believed what he said, everyone acts like it's the worst defeat possible. And thus, as burial proceedings move forward, there is a solemnness to the scriptures until three days go by. As Luke covers the Lord's resurrection this morning, and we get into it, may we see just how reliable our faith is, even when we're doubting. And thus, may we understand our faith in a better way than we have before. So chapter 23, begin in verse 50. Everyone has gone home, even Jesus' disciples, except for one guy. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. Now that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned... And prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So we stop here. We're going to get into the resurrection in chapter 24 today as well. But we stop here to meet Joseph of Arimathea. Now, while everyone else has gone home, this guy does not. He was a counselor, a member of the Sanhedrin, part of that 70-member group that governed Israel. And it mentions here, in contrast to them, he was a good man and a just man. The word good there means morally good. He, he's someone who walked with the Lord, and he was righteous, is what the word just means. He was right with God instead of just religious, like so many of the other members of that judicial group. It says the same had not consented to the counsel and the deed of them. He was not in agreement with their decision to execute Jesus and to turn him over to the Romans. Now this means either he voted against the execution or he wasn't invited to Jesus' trial. That it mentions here that he was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, means he probably didn't live in Jerusalem. So it's very likely, and most commentators believe, that he was not invited to Jesus' trial. They brought Jesus to Pilate at the crack of dawn so he would not have an opportunity to object. And most people believe that he and Nicodemus were withheld from that trial because they would have said, no, we we don't agree with this. Either way, whether he didn't agree and they outvoted him or he wasn't invited, it mentions though that he himself was someone who waited for the kingdom of God. He looked for the kingdom of God with hope and expectation. And in this Joseph is also different than the other council members. They were looking only to maintain and build their own kingdom. He was ready to happily cede it to the Messiah when he came. 
He was happy to give it to the true king, only at being recognizing himself as a steward until the king came. Joseph of Arimathea is often called one of Jesus' secret disciples, but that's probably not a fair assessment. He and Nicodemus may have followed Jesus differently than the twelve did, and maybe even in the quiet, but they spoke up for him at great risk to themselves often, as is shown here. For it says in verse 52 that this man went unto Pilate, and begged is probably a bit too weak. It means he demanded the body of Jesus. It means to ask for with urgency, even to the point of demanding. Jews commonly asked to bury criminals immediately after their death. In Deuteronomy 21, uh, uh, verses 22 and 23, it stated clearly that if they executed an enemy or a criminal, and that criminal was hung out to see what happens to criminals, and then was not buried that night before nightfall, then a curse would come upon the land. And, and the reason for that is because every life matters to God. Every person that God created was done so with love and with care. They matter to him. No matter what they decided to do with the life he gave them, he still made them and he still valued them. Because of that, he didn't want anybody hanging out there for multiple days. So he said, you take it down and you give it a burial. Now the Romans, they normally let let criminals' corpses just rot there on the cross to be picked by the carrion birds. And then they would throw the bones into the garbage heap. However, Josephus, the historian who worked for Rome, he mentions that the Romans in peace times made exceptions for this for the Jews because of their religious customs. So Pilate does grant Judas this request. So verse 53, he, Joseph of Arimathea, took it down and wrapped it in linen, the normal Jewish burial custom. And then he laid the body in a tomb, a sepulcher that was hewn in stone. It was cut out of the side of rock. And it mentions here where a never man was laid, so it was completely empty. Now, tombs like this were very expensive. Matthew calls Joseph of Arimathea a wealthy man, which means this was very likely a newly purchased family tomb, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 9, that he would be buried with the wealthy. Jesus only needed it for three days, so he kind of rented it. He wasn't really buried there. But it fulfills the prophecy, right? So he stayed there for three days, and his body was laid there. However, his body was laid there. His body was not fully prepared for the burial. And it tells us why in verse 54. Because that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. The Sabbath was about to dawn. Now, the Sabbath doesn't start at sunrise, of, of course, so about to dawn doesn't mean the sun was about to come up. The Jewish day starts at 6 p.m., so that was about to happen. So because of that, they could not prepare the spices and the ointments for the body's burial, so they just wrapped it in linen, and they laid it there on one of the slabs in the tomb. But Joseph wasn't alone in this endeavor of preparation. Verse 55, and the women also, which came with him from Galilee. So these are the women who are on Jesus's ministry team. They followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and then they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. These were the women on Jesus's ministry team who traveled with him for three years, just like the disciples, the 12 disciples did, and all the other disciples. They had, these are the same women who had watched Jesus's crucifixion from a distance. But notice they go home, but they don't remain holed up behind closed doors now. They boldly come out to serve the Lord, and this, to what they think, is their last final way they can serve him. 
And, you know, and I think that's powerful because, you know, here we have these ladies who, when Jesus was talking at the Last Supper about how he was going to be betrayed and they're all going to forsake him, you know, it's who's the one who people have spoken and said, we'd never do that. It was the guys. Peter and the other disciples, they boasted how they'd never abandoned Jesus. These women boasted nothing, but they proved their love for Jesus by risking their lives here. That's an interesting thing to consider when we look at the words that James, the subtle, ever so not direct man of God, said in James 2, verse 18, I believe, he said, a man may say, well, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, someone might come up to him and go, well, I have faith and you have works. And he goes, fine, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying that there's two different ways to get to heaven. He's saying that Faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. It's worthless. It's empty. If I can say, I, I trust the people at this church. You know, I, I really do. But I don't actually ever trust them to do anything. Do my words mean anything? They don't. So the idea here that James, in his, again, oh so subtle way, he just comes out and he says, listen, you, you say you have got great faith. Well, I don't need to boast about my great faith. I'll just show you my faith by how I live, by how I act. Actions speak much louder than words. And these women's actions spoke much louder than the disciples' words who all did abandon Jesus. And they didn't come out to see where he was buried. These women did, though. Rather than looking at my words, what does my life say about my love for Jesus? What does my life say about my love for Jesus? Now, of course, you hear that, and I'm not trying to condemn or beat anybody up and so you can walk away and go, oh, I don't love Jesus. You know, Pastor Will said I'm a bad Christian. That's, number one, not a good response to being challenged. But number two, that's not the point. The point isn't so we all walk away and go, I'm not saved or I, I don't love Jesus. That's not the point. The point is to like actually take a look and go, am I all talk? Or, or, or you know, do I really live out what I say I believe? Do I really trust the Lord? Do I really love him? Didn't do my actions show that? That's a good question to ask yourself, a really good question to ask yourself. You know, the Bible says that we're supposed to make our calling and our election sure. And so, and here's the thing. The kicker is we don't really find out if it's true until we're put into the furnace. Like you don't really know what's real that you've said is real until you actually get put in the spot where you have to act on it. And I have found that often God puts us in those places sometimes, not always, but sometimes because we haven't taken the time to examine ourselves and he doesn't want to leave us where we are. So it's not that James is yelling at everybody and he's just a grumpy old Christian going, oh, you say you trust God? I'll show you I trust God by actually doing it. That's not the point. He's challenging these believers who are suffering right now. He says, I'm writing to the Jews, Jewish believers who are scattered throughout all the world. He says, I'm writing to you who are going through it right now because you need to understand that this is a good opportunity for you to see what's real and what's not. This idea, you know, these guys profess so much but really, their hearts were not in the place they needed to be. These gals, they were, they were scared too, but they didn't need to make a profession. They were out there living it. And, and I think more often than not, sometimes, you know, we blab at the mouth a lot of times about how much we love God and whatever, and our lives, they communicate something else to our kids or to our coworkers. And that's not good. So it's good to have a time of self-examination where we say, Lord, am I living as someone who loves you? Because maybe there's an area I don't love you like I need to. Maybe there's an area that needs to change. That's the point. Not to send you away with your tail tucked between your legs.
but to have a good time of examination. Well, these three days go by, and again, everybody thinks it's just kind of, we're going to go do this last service for Jesus, but everything changes in chapter 24. It says, Now upon the first day of the week, when the Sabbath was ended, and Sunday comes, it's the first day of the week, very early in the morning, it means at sunrise. This is how we know we, Sunday actually started at 6 p.m. the previous day, so this is how they know it was on Sunday morning, not the evening. I know that's confusing for us because we don't do our days that way, but that's how they did it. It says, now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. So there was a group of women that went to the tomb initially with Joseph of Arimathea, Others are coming with them now to do this last, in their mind, last service to Jesus. These aromatic salves and oils, they are used to embalm the dead. What will be done is it helps uh, preserve the body in a, a better way. So the body would then, after it was unwrapped, and then these salves and oils were applied, they would rewrap and embalm the dead. And then the body would be left there on that stone slab for a few years until it decayed down to the bones. And then they would come back and they would put the bones in a small stone box known as an ossuary, and then they would place that ossuary in one of the compartments that would be carved inside the tomb. And that's where, you know, all the family's uh, remains would be kept. And so, you know, if you go today to one of these tombs in a more ancient culture, you'll find all these little compartments where these boxes are, and that's where the family's remains would be stored. So that was the plan. They're just going about the normal plan. Now, we don't know the name of every woman who... Uh, every single woman in this group. My guess, though, is it was the entire women's team, women's ministry team that's here because whoever was left out at the first, it just mentions these others came. This is a, not a small group that's coming to do this. That it was only women coming to do this, though, did create a small problem. The entrance to tombs like this were normally blocked by large circular-shaped stones that were securely rolled into a carved-out channel. They were not likely to receive any help from the Roman guard stationed there moving that either. They were debating on the way over there, how are we going to move the stone? But when they get there, they discover something interesting. Verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. So they entered in and they did not find the body of Jesus. Matthew tells us that an angel rolled away the stone, preceded by an earthquake that caused the guards to pass out due to fear. They were so terrified, they passed out. So I don't know if the women show up and the guards are all on the ground passed out and the stones rolled away. I I don't know if that's the case or if the guards have already woken up by this point and fled. I don't know. Either way, though, this wasn't what the women expected to find. For it says in verse 4, And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. So they go inside. They don't see the body of Jesus. And they're much perplexed. The word there means to be so much at a loss, you aren't sure how to react. They're not happy. They're not sad. They don't even know what to do next. Now, this is very interesting because there are those who would say that the disciples stole the body and everything was pre-planned. Listen, there was no pre-planned story so the disciples could steal the body and claim he rose from the dead. We've already seen how well the disciples did when they were up against Roman guards. They couldn't have knocked them out. I mean, Peter, he went after, after I trust you, he wasn't going after the guy who cut the ear off. He was going after a guard, and and he missed him and cut off some other guy's ear. So, I mean, they already know they're no match for Roman guards. And here we see the women didn't expect this at all. So much so that they had to be told by angels what had happened. For as they're standing there going, we don't know what to do next. We have no clue what's going on. Behold, which means check this out, boom, 
Behold, two men stood by them who weren't there before. And they were in shining garments. These guys had garments, clothing that flashed like lightning, okay? I mean, this is, this is worse than anybody's front yard during Christmas, all right? I mean, this is, this is, and it's scary, you know? This is something where you don't normally see someone's clothes flashing like lightning like this. It was terrifying, especially when you're already in a state of shock. So verse 5 says, And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, the angels had to say something to comfort them. The word they're afraid means to be absolutely terrified, to be extremely frightened. And so they began to bow down themselves before the angels because they didn't want to be destroyed. But the angels aren't there to destroy them, are they? Just like Jesus' birth, the angels are here to make an announcement. And they said unto them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. It's a simple announcement. Has asked the question, and then it states a fact. Easy. The first question is pretty powerful, though, and very challenging. And you wonder how many times, at least I wonder how many times angels are saying things like this about me. Why are you looking for answers where you'll never find them? That's what they're asked. Why are you looking for answers where you'll never find them? Oh, we know why. Because you didn't trust what God said. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. How many times... Is that my testimony, that I'm looking for answers where I'm not going to find them because I'm not trusting what God already told me? Trusting God when you think you understand what He's doing isn't faith. That's not faith at all. That's just good sense. Like, if you can tell exactly, or you think you can tell exactly what God's doing, that's not trusting God. It's just good sense. Any person can look at that and go, oh, I see what God's doing. Trusting God when everything you see and feel seems to contradict what God says. Now that's That's faith. That's faith. When Jesus said to them, hey, I'm going to be betrayed, handed over to uh, uh, wicked men, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again the third day. They didn't see that. It's not that they didn't hear it, it just kind of went in one ear and out the other. And so often I find that, at least maybe not with you, but that's the case with me. It's not that I don't, hear a thing that God says. I don't read it. Not that I didn't hear the preacher or the person who shared it with me, but I didn't take it to heart. I didn't trust God with it. And so the problem comes is now you're in a situation where you need that truth and you can't lay hold of it because you didn't take it to heart. You ever gone through that? Because then you start looking for answers where you'll never find them. God knows when we do that. And not always, but sometimes it's why he allows us to go through some really difficult things because we need to learn that we're not really trusting him. And the only thing that would show that to us is to put that thing to the test. I've learned over the years the things I thought I was solid in, I wasn't. Intellectually, I adhered to it. Biblically, if someone sat down and said, hey, do you believe this? I would say, well, of course. But I never really thought about it, never really meditated on it, never took it to heart in a way that I would actually be prepared if I had to put it into practice. And so the Lord then would allow me to go through a trial or go through a situation where all of that would be brought to light. 
Because here I am grasping for answers over here, 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 here. And of course, not finding anything. And I'm walking around like these ladies, perplexed, and going, what do I do next? I don't know what to do, God. Where are you? And the Lord's going, I'm right where I always was when I already gave you the answer to this situation. I'm still here. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Me and Beverly have been invited to another church for a marriage event. And uh, we went down, and this is many years ago, and we went down, and, and it was a great time. So we're on the drive back, because we, we our kids were old enough at that point in time, we could leave them. And so we're on the drive back, and, and, and we're talking about marriage, and different things, different questions people ask, everything. And, and I think Bev mentioned something along the lines of, you know, I, I don't understand why it's such a struggle. You know, the Bible says that wives are supposed to submit, submit to their husbands. She goes, you know, that's what we need to do. She goes, I'm a submissive wife, right? After about 30 minutes of silence, she says to me, okay, please tell me why I'm not a submissive, why I don't think I'm a submissive wife. And I said to her, I said, you're not a submissive wife. And I explained why. It was very quiet the rest of the way home. <laughs> Three days later, she came to me and said, I'm very angry right now. And I'm going to be angry for a little while longer. But I know you're right. I'm just struggling because I thought I was okay there. And now from the things you shared, I'm seeing I'm not. And it was cool because two weeks later, we had a really good talk. And, you know, and she, you know everything, was, everything was fine. But the point is, is that we hadn't had that conversation. We might have never also had that opportunity to grow. And, you know, I use her as an example. I have so many more examples in my life where, I thought I was fine. I thought I was obeying God or trusting God. And then God drops me into a situation where it exposes me in an area. And I realize I wasn't. I intellectually believed something, but practically I wasn't living it out. And so it's not like when Jesus said these things, they just said, ah, Jesus, you're not going to die. No, they were scared. They saw these things happening too. But the idea that it had to happen and there was a reason it should have happened and it would end in resurrection never went from here to here. And so they were looking for answers in all the wrong places and therefore not finding any. So still, he, he says he is not here, but he has risen, colon, which means the angel pauses thinking that'll be enough. And they're all just kind of looking at him going, what? So the angel says next, remember, which is actually in the imperative in the Greek, which means it's a command. You must remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. He told you he'd be betrayed. He told you it was necessary for all these things to happen and that he would rise again too. You must remember his words. And look at what verse 8 says. And they remembered his words. The word there, remember, it means they were caused to think about it again. Again, it's, it's not that they didn't hear Jesus the numerous times he said it. They just didn't give it a second thought. So now, all of a sudden, they're starting to ruminate over it and, and let it marinate in their hearts for a little bit. And all of a sudden, they're thinking, oh, my goodness. And it clicked. Let me ask you a question. Do you read your Bible like that? Where you read it and then you actually take the time to think about it, ruminate on it, let it marinate in your heart and then figure out what it means for you? 
like how this is supposed to affect how you live. James chapter 1, we read in our scripture reading, but I want to read some verses again if you want to turn there real quick. James 1, I want to highlight verses 21 to 25. Now, James has just told us, he said, listen, God's not a big meanie. Don't say when you've been tempted, you've been tempted by God. God doesn't do that. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. He's the one who birthed you. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who's done all these awesome things for you. So remember that. And in light of that, verse 21 Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That's why I love the old King James. You're never going to see a phrase like that anywhere else. Superfluity of naughtiness. It just sounds awful. It sounds like I've just got this gushing naughtiness coming out of me, horribleness. And that's the idea. That's how we are naturally. Naturally, just yuckiness comes out. But the thought is lay it aside. We have to make a choice each day to lay it aside. Lay aside filthy things. Lay aside that overflow of yuckiness that just wants to come gushing out of us. And instead, replace that, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls, to rescue from that overflow of nastiness. It says, receive with meekness God's word so you can be changed. The word meekness there means humility, a mildness of disposition. To read with humility means I think about what God says. I think about how I can apply it practically, not argue with it. Not ignore it, but with a true heart that says, what does this mean for me, God? What in my life needs to change in light of what I just read? But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word, but not a doer, he's like a man who beholds his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, sees he needs to comb his hair, and then he goes his way and immediately forgets what manner of man he is. He listens, I need to do some work. And then he goes away pretending like he never, ever saw the need to do some work. Contrast, whosoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, God's word which sets us free and continues therein. He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, that man will be blessed in his deed. In other words, his time in the scripture will bear fruit. His time in the scripture will be meaningful. Being a doer of the word means taking the time to meditate on what God's word says, to put in the effort to figure out what it means, and then to figure out how I need to put it into action in my life. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.